Strange things are afoot at the Circle K. That kid is back on the escalator again. Hand on her. Is my boomstick. Game over, man. Game over. Welcome to the Bargain Bin. He is your host, Ben Mason. And he is your co-host, Sandra Luketic. And today we're talking 1985's Silver Bullet. We assume if you're listening to this episode, you have already seen the movie. And this is our fifth movie I think we've covered with werewolves. I don't know, man. I'm not even keeping track. I thought you were going to say something about how many Corey Haim movies we've done. I don't know how many we've done. Two? Uh, Three. Is this the third? Prayers of the Roller Boys, License to Drive, and now this? Lost Boys. Oh, four. (laughs) Jesus. Don't worry, I've got more lined up for us. Oh, I can't wait. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I stumbled upon this after reading the uh, Stephen King novella Cycle of the Werewolf, not knowing that this was the film version of it. So pleasant, pleasant surprise for me when I was a kid. Cycle Um, of the Werewolf? Yeah. This is about menstruating or something? Sure is. (laughs) It's a a very different movie than the book. Um, No, uh, they they just re-released the book a few years back uh, with amazing uh, illustrations in it. Uh, Highly recommend picking it up. It's a quick read. It's less than 130 pages, but it's it's I believe the reviews called it a bloody good time. See, I don't know if you're joking or not. (laughs) Because you can take that in any possible way based off of anything either of us have said. So I'm just going to go with me and be like, from a horror stance, strictly a horror stance, I agree. No, I totally didn't intend it the way you probably Oh, I know. Oh, oh, trust me. I'm uh, just covering my own ass here. We're off to a great start. Yes. Well, I Uh mean... There's a lot of things to love about this movie, first and foremost. Yeah, what are they? When do they show up? uh, From the start to the finish. (laughs) I've watched it twice now. I'm still waiting. Oh, don't bullshit me. (laughs) There's so many things to love about this movie. All Uh, right, well, we'll we'll see. Hey, the challenge here is for you to prove to me that this is not good. Sure, okay. I guess we should just end the podcast there because it's not happening. <laughs> well, I mean, we got to do the podcast. Yeah. Okay. I, I do have complaints. Mainly the timeline. I there's don't... a lot of there's a lot of complaints with the timeline. Um, there's quite a few times where it feels like it's supposed to be multiple days, and it's not. But I'm sure those will come up because there's Mul- one very very specific example. Yeah, you're talking days. We jump way past days. <laughs> well, but, maybe I didn't observe all of them, but yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, let's jumping right in. Yeah. The film opens with credits next to a full moon, and for some reason the music we get sounds like it's from E.T. or some other family film. Um, definitely not setting the tone for what we're about to experience. A voiceover from Jane Kozlaw, uh, older Jane's voiced by Tova Feldsha. Uh, I'm not overly familiar. Voice actor, I believe. And uh, takes us back to Tarker Mills in the spring of 1976. It's the last full moon, and it came a month before summer vacation. And that was their town's long nightmare. Well, the beginning of their town's long nightmare. 
I don't get the idea of using a narrator here. When you don't need it's, it. It's so seldom. Like, if you're going to have her narrate, first of all, I think the story should revolve around her character more than it actually does. But second of all, if you're going to have a narrator, use them more than like three or four times throughout the entire movie. And it already says Tarker's Mills 1976 on screen. There's an inner title. The voiceover happens. You're like, what the hell? Why? What is this? And like you said, it's so infrequent throughout the movie. The last line of the movie is a voiceover. And as as that sentence finishes, my response was, the fuck does that mean? <laughs> and then the credits roll. Like, what? But we'll get to that. One of the few problems, I, I admit. Uh, we cut to a drunken railroad worker, uh, Arnie Westrom. And I don't know if you recognize the actor. Um He's the late great James Gammon. He's been in so many movies. So I many. I recognize TV him uh, from Major League. Yes, he was the coach for Major Loved League. Loved him in that. Hilarious. It, you know what? You know what got it because he doesn't. He looks so much younger in this yeah. than he does in Major League, which is not super far off. Is the voice? He has such a distinct voice. Oh, it sounds like he just lives off of a diet of broken glass. Yeah. It's great, though. And he also, like, there's something about the look on his face. You're like, this guy seems like he could be a good friend. So perfect casting because he doesn't last long and you actually feel bad for him. I was so disappointed. I was hoping to see more of him. He's just uh, doing his thing, which is apparently getting wasted and singing to himself. Uh, He thinks he hears something in the distance. Spoiler alert, he does, obviously, but just shrugs it off. So, you know. Typical horror movie stuff here. He's watched from the tree line and realizes such when he hears, or sorry, when he sees a large animal print in the dirt with an utterance of, ah, shit. A swipe from a beast decapitates him and sends his head flying. People around the town hear a wolf's howl in the darkness. And I thought that was really cool. Everyone just pausing and like looking off to the side or up at the sky. Would that many people stop at the sound of a wolf howl? I don't know how the wolf howl goes through walls first and foremost but everybody in town hears it and nobody talks about it everyone's listening with a look on their face like that's unusual better not say that to anything or anyone guess what they don't normally have wolves well and that's a question too i i'm not entirely sure where this is set they may not didn't they say at the beginning with the 1976 that's a time no 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 but i'm thinking like it's. I'm pretty sure it's supposed to be set in Maine, but I didn't remember hearing Maine. Okay, all right. It's Stephen King, right? So it's somewhere around New England. Uh, Jane's voiceover tells us that since Arnie was a drunk, the town's coroner believed the death to be an accident, most likely Arnie passing out on the train tracks. Um, I have a no. problem here. <laughs> yeah, I got a bit of a problem here too. We, if we he passed t- out on the train tracks, it would not be that clean of a cut. There would be a lot more squished. It's not that clean of a cut, though. It's torn. But like, it's we... torn, but it's like his head is intact from where it's severed. If he was on the train tracks, one side of that would have been flattened. Well, that's it. the train runs over his head. It does. Because the head is on the tracks. And fine. But did nobody look at the body? The body's completely untouched by the train. So any damage to the neck underneath the chin and the neck above the shoulders is completely different. 
Well, we clearly both had different thoughts on this, but the same idea that the yeah. train would have done substantially different damage. Yeah, I, I'm no expert, but I'm pretty sure an animal attack looks different than being hit by a fucking train. I don't know. Maybe like werewolves are a little different. I guess. Cut to midday in Tarker's Mills. Uh, a fair, I guess, of sorts is taking place near town square. And we learn at this point in time that Jane, played by Megan Follows, is 15 and her paraplegic brother, Marty, played by Corey Haim, is 11. Okay. Fact. A fact that lasts for a very short time in this movie. Sheriff Joe Holler, your boy Terry O'Quinn. And Not I just think my boy. Our boy. There you go. Uh, I think this is his third and final horror film appearance, which means we've covered the Terry O'Quinn horror canon. Uh, he calls to uh, gather the order. Jane excuses herself as the sheriff introduces Reverend Lowe, played by Everett McGill, uh, who I know from the people under the stairs. Uh, Jane has to check on Marty, who she refers to as her cross to bear, which is pretty fucking rude. Uh, Marty and his friend Brady play a joke on Jane by dangling a garter snake at her from a tree above. She freaks out, face planting in, in the leaves and uh, ruining her hose. And I have to say that Haim is in a wheelchair that's been rigged with a motor from, I think, a lawnmower. And the words silver bullet painted on a sign on the back of it. Marty obviously feels remorseful, but Brady makes it even worse by throwing the snake at Jane, causing her to fall into a mud puddle. Marty apologizes again, and Jane storms off. This is me and my sister 100% in the 80s. Like, I, I understand the sibling relationship here. That Brady is a jerk. He is a jerk. At no point do I understand throughout this movie why he and Marty are friends. No, but, it's like they're the only two kids in town. But they aren't. And we see that Marty's friends with all the kids playing baseball later. They're just unimportant. I guess... Actually, I don't know what I guess. I don't know why Brady's in this movie. <laughs> I have no idea. He's a pointless character. The crying Jane hides in the bushes to remove her hose, but accidentally overhears an argument. A sobbing Stella Randolph pleads with her boyfriend to stay after revealing she's pregnant. And the asshole refuses to accept responsibility and walks off. And that's a really fucking raw scene, man. Um... He just shrugs all responsibility and walks away, telling her to remember the good times. And the acting here, I think, is phenomenal. Like, I feel so bad for Stella. Like, if I were there, I'd be like, come along with me. We'll figure this out. Like, I've never been so convinced by fake crying. Any comment on the acting at this point? Are we good? It was all right. Okay. I, I wasn't uh, I wasn't as convinced as you were, I guess. Uh, well, it's the only time she convinces me. Oh, she's quite bad later on. Yeah. Um, I definitely felt bad for her character. I also felt bad for myself for that acting and having to bear witness to it. To her acting or his acting? Both of them. Oh, you... No, you're just playing wrong. All right. During the drive home, Nan Kozlaw... Uh, the mom will say of the family. I forget her uh, the uh, performer's name. Uh, lectures Jane on not accepting Marty's apology, especially since there's no way he could have climbed the tree to stop Brady. Fair point. Uh, Except for that we see him climb a tree later. Yeah, but that tree was a tough one. Just saying. 
Yeah, that's fine. He was up really high, though. She really would not have even seen that snake. Um, the understandably upset Jane yells that it's not her fault Marty's crippled. And the whole time, Marty just looks so dejected. And yet again, he apologizes. This reaffirms my uh, belief that Corey Haim was one of the most amazing people in the world. Except for the uh, rampant drug use. The Kozlaws arrive at home and unpack uh, that sick wood-paneled station wagon. Love that thing. Bob tells Jane to help her brother, and she frustratingly does so. Um, I love how the hitch they use for the wheelchair is the most basic-looking piece of wood on wheels. Oh, it's plywood, yeah. <laughs> Definitely plywood. Um, I have to say, it's it's hard not to feel for Jane at this point, though. Like, she she is mean to her brother, um, but she still does what she needs to do to help him out. Uh, and at this point, I'm led to believe that Jane is our main character because they don't give us any reason to believe otherwise. I just found that really well, weird storytelling. She's narrating the story. Yep. They build sympathy for her immediately. Yep. Why wouldn't you think she's the main character? Right. But she's not. Marty asks if Uncle Red is still coming over, and Jane tells him that their mother, Red's sister, is upset about Red getting yet another divorce. Uh, we're led to believe that this is because Red is a chronic alcoholic. That night, Marty wheels himself into Jane's room and leaves her money on her nightstand so she can buy a new pair of hose. They talk about Red and if what she said earlier was true. Um, it's obvious here that Red is Marty's hero, and he doesn't know how to process the information that he can't maintain relationships. He's a major alcoholic. And then Marty just kind of says, maybe I'll like the next one better referring to the next wife, which would be wife number four. Well, I mean, at least he's realistic. He knows the cycle, <laughs> the cycle <laughs> of the werewolf. There you go. Uh, the moon is full and we transition to the Randolph house where Stella is about to commit suicide by ODing. And I don't have the the line written down here because it is so painful to listen to. But basically saying that committing suicide, she'll go to hell. Uh, even if she's pregnant, she doesn't care. Uh, the, the worst. The absolute worst acting in this movie. That is pretty bad, yeah. Uh, if you didn't pick that for the worst acting... Well, I don't, I don't know what I'm talking about. I didn't pick it for worst acting, so. <laughs> <laughs> Outside, the werewolf climbs the garden trellis, which, sure, and bursts through Stella's window, tearing her apart. Downstairs, her mother grabs a revolver and runs for the stairs, but it's too late. The next morning, Sheriff Holler is on the phone, arguing with the, de sorry, arguing with the detectives coming to investigate the murder. Um, any comment on the uh, the phone call scene? It was good. Yeah, we'll get to it later. Later at the local bar, Andy calls out Howler. Deputy uh, Pete, I believe his name is, puts him in his place, but Andy tries to rally the patrons. Uh, Lawrence Tierney makes an appearance as barkeep Owen Knopfler and is quick to break things up by introducing his baseball bat, the Peacemaker. The next day, Marty rides home with Tammy, a girl from school, and they stop when they see the crime scene at the Randolph house. So, uh, okay, never mind. I was going to say, this seems like a really tight-knit community, but everything seems so far apart. A uh, small town, you know. And no, that's what I'm saying. It feels like a small town, 
But it's like if you were going to go to your neighbor's house, you pack a lunch because you're not going to make it there. Yeah. But, all right. When they arrive at Tammy's Those house. communities usually are fairly tight knit. Are they? Yeah. Okay. Big city man telling me what it's like to live in a small community. Yeah, I didn't grow up in Breslau or anything, man. Yeah, fair. Uh, when they arrive at Tammy's house, she tells Marty that she's been hearing scary noises coming from the shed in the backyard. Milt, her abusive drunk of a father, yells at her to come over, and Tammy kisses Marty goodbye. And um, I I picked up on this immediately, just because I love South Park. But did you hear the way that her father yells her name? It is <laughs> its 100% Timmy from South Park. I didn't catch that, no. I went over it three times, and I swear to God, that's where Parker and Stone got that saying from. I know that uh, my thought in this scene was she's talking about the shed or whatever, and uh, Corey Haim's like, well, if I could, I would go check it out. And she's like, would you really? And he's so hesitant to say, yeah, sure. (laughs) It's like, just say yes. You don't have to follow through here. You don't have to prove it. You're going to get the kiss. Just say yes. For you, baby, of course I would. Yeah, spoken like a true 11-year-old. Yeah, you failed. <laughs> um, Did you pick up on the line that uh, Tammy's father drops after he leaves? Something about paraplegics or cripples yeah, always have, ending up on welfare. I have damn cripples always end up on welfare ought to electrocute them all and balance the goddamn budget. Bravo. (laughs) (laughs) That would totally fly today. The jump, though. The jump from damn cripples. Then then the welfare, okay. Electrocution. Don't know where you got that from. Balancing the budget by wiping them out. Okay. Okay. Marty's wheelchair is running on empty, so he stops by Virgil Cutts gas station. Virgil, played by uh, William Newman. Uh, and you know you see this, like anytime you see this man on screen, you're going to get an amazing performance. It's a shame he wasn't in it more. That night, Uncle Red, played by the absolutely wonderful Gary Busey, arrives at the Coslaws. He's already down a fair amount of wild turkey and is telling Marty a joke while they play poker. Nan is not at all pleased, eventually making Marty go to bed. And you can tell by the look on Red's face that he knows he's a fuck up. Why did we skim over the gas station scene? Uh, Because I feel like not a lot happened there. I just, I was so confused if he was being chummy or seriously insulting the cripple kid. Oh no, he's being chummy because he's like that rest of the, the rest of the time in the movie. <clears throat> Fair. And I guess uh, Corey Haim does kind of like smile and shrug it off, but it's pretty harsh for just chumsy kidding around. Yeah. It is the 80s, though. Like, people were pretty blunt with their joking. Um, But I really have no reason to believe that anybody other than Tammy's father thinks poorly of Marty. It seems just like a wholesome American town. Well... The idea of the wholesome American town. I don't really think those exist. Yeah, it doesn't seem like it. Yeah. Uh, Red and Nan argue about his drinking around Marty and potential negative influences. Red comes back at her saying that she needs to understand there's more to Marty than him not being able to walk. 
which is a pretty serious dig, but they go back and forth at each other. Um, and I think to me, it in- seems like an argument that's <laughs> escalating based on neither of them responding to the other one. And, and that's talking about his drinking and he's like, it's not just about him being a cripple. Yeah. It's, it's a, it's a classic. <clears throat> what about case? Um, but Stephen King wrote the screenplay for the movie as well as the, the book. Um, and I think he does a great job at showing the different sibling relationships. Like we get Jane and Marty who are doing their best to make things work, even though there's tension. And then we get Nan and red who have just given up and just, constantly dig at each other well after so many years it is what it is yeah but then there's a line later on that totally negates that theory and i don't know if that's just stephen king's poor writing or if i was looking way too deep into it but i feel like that's a really obvious dynamic we're supposed to pull out of this scene no idea no you have more siblings than i do i thought you'd have something to say about this did you like you made it work right or is uh, it constantly very, very, like separate everybody and keep them apart? It's a very different dynamic as both of my siblings are sisters. They shared a room. They did things together. And I was just kind of the odd one out. Mm, so okay. it minimized tension when I was kind of doing my own thing. I guess. Good point. Over at Tammy's house, Milt is still wasted and getting even more drunk watching wrestling. A POV lets us know the werewolf is outside and messing around inside the shed. Um, it's never really explained what the hell it's doing in there. It's just breaking pots. I think it's meant to be luring him out there. I guess, but like it happens enough that Tammy hears it. She's heard it so many times that she's afraid about, she's afraid of the shed. So is the werewolf going in night after night being like, God damn it. He's going to come out here eventually. Yeah. Break, this break will more be pot. the night. <laughs> <laughs> Well, it is, because Milt finally hears the ruckus outside, gets a shotgun, and heads out. And I love course, how in Milt's mind, I love how in Milt's mind, it's just darn kids messing with his pots. So he gets a shotgun. He gets a shotgun. His reaction is, I'm going to shoot these kids messing with my pots. Well, he wants to have Marty electrocuted because he can't walk and is taking up too much money and resources. Yeah. But... Is this an effective death scene? Like, nobody likes Milt. He's the least likable character. So it almost feels like we're just wasting time for him to bite it because it's a prolonged scene. It's not building tension. We know there's a goddamn werewolf out there. It's not like, oh, is he going to get him? Is he not going to get him? Well, he hasn't gotten him the last few times he's tried. So (laughs) probably, yeah, he will get him this time. It is a cool death scene, though. Yeah. A uh, uh, werewolf bursts through the wooden floor and pulls him under. At the same time, Milt's impaled by one of the broken planks. That's pretty good. I mean, I mean, from a visual standpoint, sure, but logistically, it does not make any sense. How did he get under there if he was in there? I don't. Well, it, if we see, like, as Milt's walking through, the werewolf is looking through the potted plants. The tallest. That's exactly potted... what I mean. How did the he get tallest... under there? No, the tallest potted plant's a foot and a half tall. So is the werewolf crouching down? Well, yeah, he was on all fours at that point, right? Like a wolf. It's not a tiny wolf, man. It's massive. It's, 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 you you know, if it's laying on its stomach, it's it's under a foot and a half. So you're telling me that this werewolf (laughs) has decided that his best plan of action is to lay prone on a floor in a shed behind a couple potted plants 
and then we'll just somehow flip through the side under the floor and burst up through to kill this drunk with a shotgun. Well, maybe that's why he's on the floor is there was a little trap door there that he could use to get under it. That's the only thing that makes sense because otherwise the werewolf's doing reconnaissance as he's about to kill. Hey man, this is your movie. You it's not my it. movie. I picked it. This is a Stephen <laughs> King's movie. He wrote it <laughs> twice. Well, okay. Speaking of writing, the next day, the newspaper headline reads, Maniac Claims Another Victim. But did you notice the date on the newspaper? 1980. September 8th, 1980. The movie starts in the spring of 76. So over four years have gone by. Uh, I think that's just a continuity error. It has to be. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Fear is gripping the town. and Andy puts up a sales sign in a storefront for Remington shotguns. People rush inside their homes as the sun begins to set each evening. And here you go. Yes, Marty pulls himself up into a tree to free a kite from a branch. Low-hanging branches, I have to say. He and Brady have been flying kites that afternoon. Jane arrives to drag him back home for dinner, and Brady decides to stay behind. Marty looks back at his friend for an oddly long period of time, almost as if he knows that this could be the last time he sees him. Um, Brady's a jerk. He is a jerk. That kite is in a short tree. You're not even going to climb up for your cripple friend to get it. You're going to make him do it. Yeah. Marty's an independent boy. He can do it. He proved that he could do it. I mean, I, I didn't doubt he could, but still be like, hey, man, I got this one. Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, I get it. I, I, it was an empty argument on my end. I was just trying to mess with you a bit. Well, that's not going to work. You can't mess with me. It's true. And uh, Marty's right. Yeah, this is the last time he sees Brady. Back at the bar, the townsfolk are getting drunk and riled up, and Andy's at the forefront of it again. He and Deputy Peter are about to fight, but Brady's father shows up, demanding to know if anybody has seen his son. And the police find the boy's body in the park. I think it was Holler. Holler found him, right? And just started reciting a prayer. Yeah, he was uh, a little quite shook. distraught when he was carrying that kite over. Mm-hmm. As if also, the don't carry the crime scene. Leave it. Leave it where you found it. Yeah, but uh, they don't show us Brady no like at all close up i think terry o'quinn does a great job as he's walking away just kind of portraying like this is a gruesome scene well they would have to there's no way they're going to show us a mutilated child right so they just put that weight on terry o'quinn and i mean if you're going to pick anybody in the movie our boy terry can do it well you ain't going to put it on brady's father because the thing missing other than his son is his acting abilities and his hair well come on man don't don't do that to bald people. Ah, so I can't mess with you, huh? No, oh, you can't. Yeah, fair enough. The next day, <laughs> or soon after, <laughs> we're at the church for Brady's funeral, Reverend Lowe presiding. After the service, Red takes his nephew home, and during the drive, Marty suggests maybe it's a monster killing everybody, even a werewolf. Red laughs it off. Werewolf's quite the jump. Right? <laughs> like, even that caught me off guard. I'm like, a monster? Why? A werewolf? All right. Um, why not a vampire? Seriously. Well, Stephen, a vampire, Stephen there would King. be there would be puncture marks on the neck if, there, if it was a vampire. Vampires can rip people apart. Well, they got feet on have them you first. Seen otherwise, Cordello of Blood. Come on, man. Just help me out here. All right, fine, fine. There's fine. all there. One hundred percent of the squatch. 
fine. Say that's more believable than a werewolf. <laughs> Give me Bigfoot. You're like, maybe it's a monster. Dot, dot, dot. Like Bigfoot. And Red's like, yeah, we're, you know, we're in New England. There's a lot of forested areas. I understand normally he's in the Pacific Northwest, but he could jaunt across the other side of the country. Sure. Werewolf? I mean, yeah, okay. That for me as a horror fan, fucking give me a werewolf. But it just doesn't make sense. There's no logic in that jump. Perhaps it was a Frankenstein's monster. Or maybe a Dracula. No, there would be puncture marks on the neck. We're going I, in a circle no, here. No, I know. That vampires, yes. It was I was more so making a joke about people referring to vampires as Draculas, which I'm hearing more and oh, more. Oh, I see what you're saying. Yeah. Uh, Marty mentions the noises from Tammy's shed, but Red points out that psychos are more active during a full moon. Fine. If he thinks that it could be a psycho in the shed, call the police. Anybody no. could call the police. Tammy could call the police. Milt obviously couldn't because I don't think he would have known how to use a phone. He was wasted all the time. But like, even Red would be like, hey, you know what? Maybe I'll call the police and get them to check out the shed You know, on behalf of your girlfriend. Maybe. Uh, and also red's like yeah it's not a werewolf it's probably just a psycho well i mean that's a more realistic assumption than just oh yeah yeah, it's a werewolf yes but i don't think it's any less important (laughs) no uh i mean if it's not a werewolf then yeah it's probably a psycho yeah equal cause for alarm i would say anyway That night at the bar, Andy has the townsfolk rallied into a mob, and they plan a method to hunt the killer. See, that makes sense. We'll go after the psycho. Holler interrupts the meeting and declares himself the law of Tarker's Mills and demands everyone return home. Yeah, you don't have to declare it. You're the sheriff. We know. Brady's father, Herb, delivers a powerful speech, muting the sheriff and his power and further inciting the mob, sending them out into the streets. Reverend Lowe arrives and pleads with Holler to stop them, but it's no hope. This speech was garbage to me. It was terrible. Because he starts off by telling the guy who's riling up the crowd to shut up and then saying, but do what he say. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. And after they leave, Holler gives up completely. Because when Reverend Lowe runs up, they're like, stop them, please stop them. And I was like, ah, this is the community spirit you were talking about. Does not I do like how spirit. they had the Reverend trying to stop them for obvious reasons. Yeah. it's That makes sense. His actions make sense. And as the movie progresses, makes even more sense. Some good writing from Stephen King. Great job, Steve. Uh, the mob gathers at the park where Brady was found, and they run into the woods armed to the teeth. Of course, this is a horror film, so there's a thick layer of fog passing through the trees. Um, The werewolf uses this as perfect cover, taking out several members of the mob, even beating Owen to death with his own peacemaker bat. After a line of, are you going to make lemonade in your pants? That screams Stephen King. So bad. Yeah. Have you read any King books? No, but... Even if it's supposed to be decent in writing, it wasn't acted well. Nobody could act that out well. Maybe maybe Terry O'Quinn. But other than Terry O'Quinn, nobody would be able to say that line convincingly. 
And I think that's that's a problem with this movie is that there are some lines of dialogue in here that you know King insisted stay in the movie. But they're poor on the written page as is. They're going to be even worse once you try and get somebody to say them. I agree. <laughs> Uh, also, I, this is the only movie uh, I've ever seen where a werewolf beats people to death with a baseball bat. Mm, fair, yeah. And like once is campy. More than once is ridiculous. And it, it's just it's awful. Anyway, at a mass funeral, the townsfolk sway as they sing Amazing Grace, but something seems off to Reverend Lowe. Eventually, the congregation begin to scream and transform into werewolves. And the windows of the church blow out and Reverend Lowe screams in terror. Uh, it really is a beautiful cacophony, though. It looks absolutely amazing. But this is simply a nightmare the Reverend is experiencing, and he wakes up screaming in his bed. Uh, what do you think of the werewolf effects? Uh, better here than they are later. Yeah, for uh, a relatively low-budget horror film, where you've got that much happening on screen... Uh, I thought it was probably the best special effects of the entire film. Yeah, it definitely goes downhill. Yeah. Uh, the next day, the Kozlaws arrive at the carnival and find it closed, and the 4th of July fireworks have been canceled. Now, this is where I have another nitpick. Um, if we're to believe the newspaper we saw earlier, that was September of 1980, which means now we're in July of 81. And that's fine. But it's a small town, and you think news of this, or like these murders would have spread around, and also nobody has aged in five years. Uh, I think the big thing is that the newspaper was just an oversight. It has to be, right? Yeah. Well, we get more date issues later in the movie that like have nothing to do with the newspaper. Okay. Uh, what do I have here? Jane acts like an asshole when Marty's depressed by the cancellation and their parents tell her to lay off, which seems pretty reasonable at this point. Uh, the sheriff has imposed a curfew, which also makes sense. Why wouldn't he? Although people were already running inside and hiding anyway. So, okay. I guess he's just doing his job, but the Kozlovs are having a family barbecue in the backyard. Uh, Marty and red out front red secretly working on something in the garage. Marty seems equally upset about the monster having killed people and the fair and fireworks being canceled as if they're all the same thing. But I think he's slightly more pissed off about the fireworks being canceled than everybody being killed, including his best friend and the father of his pseudo girlfriend who has since left town because of her father's murder. Yes. Red tries to cheer up the boy by showing him what he's been working on. A new souped-up motorcycle wheelchair, Marty's new silver bullet. Um, next, we get one of my favorite parts of the movie. As short as it is, it makes me laugh out loud. Uh, Red checks on the backyard before letting Marty take the bike out for a test run. He just peeks around the corner to see what the family's doing, and they're still all getting the barbecue ready and everything. And Nan sees him. She's like, Red? And he's like walking away. He's like, hey! And then just <laughs> runs away. Like, that is the most... <laughs> Conspicuous <laughs> thing. You'd be like, what is my constantly wasted brother doing spying on us? Where is my son? Why is he running away? I loved it. It's so good. 
it's, it's timed perfectly. <laughs> Nothing to see over here. Yeah. It's like, stay where you are. But just that sound. Hey! <laughs> As he's running away. Uh, and yeah, this, this motorcycle wheelchair, this bike goes. Marty takes it out flying down the road, even passing cars. Returns to the house, stunned at how fast it goes. And then we got a line from Busey here that kind of made me a little bit depressed. It's oddly prophetic. Uh, he says, listen to me. I built that for you because I love you right from my heart, but I want you to be careful on it because if you got hurt on it, it'd kill me. And it's only a couple of years after this movie came out when Busey had his motorcycle accident, um, wasn't being safe, wasn't wearing a helmet, a helmet and, uh, suffered permanent degrading brain damage. And that's why we have the Busey of today. The man is slowly going crazy, but he's aware of it. He just can't control it. Wow. Thanks for picking up the podcast, dude. Hey, you're welcome, man. Now I just um, feel depressed. <laughs> uh, well, if not for that, we wouldn't get the ginger dead man. You know, that Gary BC classic. Oh yeah. That one. I've totally seen that. But if anything, that gives you reason to go back and look at some of the crazy good stuff he did. Like he did, uh, it, it was a lethal weapon. I can't remember if it was lethal weapon one or two. Um, uh, I, I the tiger surviving the game uh, under siege. He's fantastic. Some of his earlier stuff. Uh, but yes, cut to the end of the barbecue that night. Family shared food and laughs, and Red excuses himself for the night. Marty escorts him to the driveway, where Red surprises him with a bag of fireworks. Red says he knows Marty wanted a Fourth of July, but he's going to have to have it in September. So, so is it September now? That's my question, because Marty goes out that night to set them off. So we've skipped all of July, all of August, and now we're in September, which is still warm enough to wear shorts and t-shirts while you're having barbecue. Not in New England, man. It gets chilly. Anyway, Red specifically points out one firework, telling him it's a rocket and to save it for last. It's not a rocket. Then he drives off into the night. Later that night, Marty sneaks out of his room and descends a radio tower attached to his house. I haven't seen one of those in a long time. Very 80s. Uh, he pulls himself into the silver bullet and rides off down the road to set off the fireworks. <clears throat> How does he not wake up his family? I don't know. <laughs> I that silver no bullet idea. is not quiet. No, it's not. It has like a dual exhaust on the back. You and see in uh, you see in roars. these movies when a kid is like sneaking out with a car all the time, they push it in neutral first before they get far enough away to turn it on. He ain't doing that here. No, he's just riding that sucker off, and nobody hears it. And uh, honestly, at one point, as soon as he pulls himself out of the window, out of his bedroom window, and like swings, I thought he was gonna fall. Can you imagine just seeing this poor kid swing out onto the, ra uh, the radio tower trying to sneak out of his house, just falling and like smacking his face off silver bullet and just laying on the floor on the ground? Like, it's a disaster waiting to happen. Well, now you know how he became crippled. Oh. Which we never find out, do we? No, never. Mm. But on the plus side, he learned from it. Sure did. Ends up on a wooden bridge in the park and starts the light show. And this catches the attention of the werewolf. 
that's just because in the park. how could it not? Well, why is it just roaming around a park at night? Uh, not even why is it wandering around the park? Throughout this movie, we can just be like, why a werewolf? Because we don't get any explanation behind that either. This is where my thoughts on the werewolf changed substantially. Okay. Um, well, the werewolf rushes the boy. Marty fires off the rocket straight into the beast's left eye, and he speeds away. And this makes no sense. This whole scene to me. Like I said, why is the werewolf wandering around the park? Mar- why is Marty there? He knows something is out there killing people. Still ventures out into the night alone. He even thinks it's a werewolf. Yeah, he's the first and only one to say it until now. So why? Fireworks, man. Why not just wait until he's with, like, Uncle Red again? Like, it's not specific to a day. It's no longer the 4th of July, apparently. It's sometime in September. I'm pretty sure you pointed out the impact of how important fireworks were to this kid. I guess. But even, like, Red tells him to hide him in the bushes. Like, they're going to be there for a couple of days. That He's got to get his fix, man. He needs his I, fireworks. I guess. He returns home and hides in his room, where he calls Red, screaming about seeing the werewolf. Red doesn't believe him and hangs up. And Red's already got another girl on the go, apparently. Yeah, well, you know. Yep. Can't get divorced three times if you don't get married three times. This is a ladies' man. Well, the raw sex appeal of Gary Busey, who's starting to look like Roddy Piper. Uh, the next day, Marty tells Jane about the werewolf. A voiceover from older Jane says what she heard she didn't fully believe, but she did believe some of it. One thing she knew for sure was that Marty believed it all. Oh, right. There was a narrator. <laughs> yeah, right. Who comes in here with a voiceover telling us shit we already know. <laughs> like, this had to be a favor to the performer, right? I don't know. It, It's pointless. It, like... The very beginning, the voiceover lets us know that there's going to be some scary times for the town. Yeah, we were watching a, a horror movie called Silver Bullet, and it takes place in a small town. We know something bad's going to happen. Then the next time we hear from it, she just tells us something we witnessed already. Yeah, what's the problem, man? You know what? Me, obviously. Obviously, I am the fucking problem here. Yeah, this movie is great, like you said. It is great, but uh, mm, don't try me, man. I mean, I'm still waiting for the great parts. Let's go. We've already seen a bunch of them. Uh, maybe. Yeah, one or two. Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Hmm. Together, they form a plan to sniff out the <laughs> werewolf. Marty told her that he injured the beast's left eye, so she goes door to door under the guise of running a bottle drive, but in reality is trying to find somebody with one eye. This leads I her mean, to... it makes sense what she's investigating, but it's a werewolf. How do we know that it wouldn't just regenerate? I don't know. I have no idea. This well, is lucky the, for them, this it is doesn't. Coming, this is coming from the mind of an 11-year-old child. Oh, we see more terrible ideas from him later on, yeah. Everybody. We see terrible ideas from everybody except for BC for the most part. Uh, this eventually leads Jane to the church to drop off the bottles where she's spooked by a mouse and falls into a pile of cans in the garage. Here she discovers the remnants of the Peacemaker bat and when the Reverend checks in on her, she realizes he's wearing a gauze eye patch. One um, interesting was, thing. I just have to say, there was a really great early reveal to the audience of this, though, 
which really built up the tension before it, she discovers it. But yes, go ahead. Uh, just looking up uh, the timeline errors, because that seems to be what I do now on IMDb. They had Diet Coke cans in the garage. Mm-hmm. Was not invented before 1976. Didn't They didn't make it yet. When did they start making it? Um, I didn't get the exact year, but it wasn't made yet. Well, I'm going to get the exact year. Let me search this. Because now I'm curious. You can't trust IMDb all the time, my friend. Okay, Diet sure. Coke. Yeah. What year is it introduced? Well, I mean, if you go along the timeline that we've been given in the movie, it's possible. Because this says it was introduced August 9th, 1982. But it's 1976. I mean, newspaper says it's 1980, and then we're led to believe later on, if the newspaper's correct, it's 1981. And then the seasons seem to shift and the months shift, so now it seems like it's summer again. So it could be summer of 82. We don't know. None of this makes sense. Well, I mean, in that case, they have not aged in six years. She would well, be 21 now. What's that no, one if it was difference going to do? If she, uh-huh. if she was 82, if it was 1982, she would now be 21. I know. That's my problem. It's 76, man. It can't Just be. Poorly done. All right. In this fantastic movie of yours. I love it. It's so good. She excuses herself and leaves, and you can tell that she knows, or you can tell that he knows his secret is now out. Well, yeah, because he says, you know, say hello to your brother. Exactly. But, I mean, that's just a priest being a priest. Jane tells Marty, and they are forced to come up with a plan since they can't just tell their parents Marty's plan. Oh. And what is well, Marty's because plan? because they said parents won't believe them. What's his plan? It's terrible. He's going to write him ransom note-style letters to tell him that we know who you are and you should kill yourself. Yeah, I'm pretty sure a priest is going to really follow along with that. Not even, like, leave town, but kill yourself. Yep. And uh, he gets Jane to mail it. Uh, Reverend Lowe, now rocking a full-on pirate patch, receives the letter, and uh, it goes as well as one would imagine. And they send letters day after day, uh, and eventually tell Red what they've been doing. And, okay, we get another great voiceover from older Jane saying that Red's reaction was less than serene. You're like, yeah, you're harassing the Reverend with letters telling him to kill himself. I like how they point out that they sent, like, four days of letters. Yeah, day after day, and on (laughs) day after day after day, I think. And, And then on that Saturday, they told Red. And then Red's first reaction is, you've been doing this for three days? (laughs) (laughs) I'd accept that he got that wrong just because he's drunk. Yeah. But with all the other timeline errors, it just stood out as more funny to me. It's hilarious. Um, Yeah, like, there, there are many problems with the movie. But I think once you're like, okay, obviously it's a Stephen King movie. There's no way in hell it's going to be perfect. Unless we're talking Shawshank Redemption or Green Mile. Or stand by me. Anyway, you just have to accept the fact that there's going to be problems and you just have to have fun with it. Uh, And yeah, Red is really pissed. You're right. 
Uh, Marty's reasoning doesn't sit well with him either. Uh, still, he takes the kids to scope out the church. Uh, Red, you know, not believing the kids since Lowe's outside painting a church sign. Later that day, Marty sits outside the fence watching kids play baseball. Um, the camera shots, man. It's just nailing you over the head with the fact that that Marty wishes that he could walk or run like the other kids because it's showing shots of like, you know, kids playing baseball. And then the screen will just be like kids running from the waist down, which (laughs) is so jarring and just makes me feel like they didn't really know how to convey emotion. When all you have to do is look at Haim's face and he's emoting well enough that you can tell he's longing to play with friends. He doesn't know what it's like to play with his friends, to play baseball, to do anything like that. Even I can't put it down. Haim does do a good enough job that you could have done that. Yeah, it's just, it. it's weird. I don't like it. Um, But Reverend Lowe's car pulls up in the background, so I guess that's the point of this scene all around. Like, we already know that Marty feels bad. On Marty's ride home, the Reverend tries to run him off the road, and a chase ensues. Marty's tank is on empty, and he takes off down a dirt road signed with a warning of a dangerous bridge. At least they um, alluded to that earlier mm-hmm. when they showed that, yeah, he's not good at keeping the tank on full. Yeah. And that's why he goes to Virgil's gas station. You're like, perfect. Yeah, Let so they actually set that up. Oh, okay, that's a typical character trait of his, letting the gas run out. Yeah, it's good. No problem there. Um, I was complimenting it. Yeah, I know. That's what I'm saying, though. Like, there's nothing we can say bad about that. That makes perfect sense. It's great. It's good to have because it does help with this scene. All right. So that's one more piece of decent writing. Lowe's car gets stuck in the dirt and Marty hides in the condemned covered bridge. Um, He only gets stuck for like a, a second, though which I don't understand how he gets his car out of like seven inches of loose dirt, but he does. But anyway, uh, he enters, uh, sorry, Lowe enters the bridge on foot, apologizing to Marty for what he has to do. Uh, I have a note written here saying that this is a great scene uh, because Everett McGill is legitimately scary. Um, Lowe tries to justify his actions by saying that suicide is a great sin, a greatest sin a person can commit. A person can commit, yeah, sorry. So by killing Stella, he saved her soul. Then I've written down, yeah, sure, but he just outright killed everybody else. Yeah, see, this is where I was trying to figure out, like, is is he in general trying to get people that are, I don't know, drunks, kid bullies, a suicide person? Obviously not as extreme, but not the most stand-up civilians. No. Or based on his religion. But then getting Marty, it's like, well, I guess it's just because his cover was blown? Yeah. I'm also, I'm pretty sure that uh, killing children will also send you to hell if hell exists. So, especially using the guise of a man of God to do so. It's flawed logic at best. Especially when his plan is to throw Marty in the river and let him drown. (laughs) I mean... Because, like, as a werewolf, I'm assuming he's in beast mode killing people. This is just premeditated murder. Well, because now somebody knows who he is. Yeah. So it changes things. Yeah, I guess. But, like, I do have a problem that the first person that discovers that he's a werewolf 
is an 11-year-old kid. 11-year-old kid in a wheelchair because the werewolf messed up. Like, if he's been doing this for God knows how long, because we don't know how long. Nobody tells us how he became a werewolf, and that's incredibly frustrating for me. Well, especially in your timeline, he's been doing this at least six years. Right. So, like, if it had, if, <laughs> if 1976 was the start of it, he's already an established member of the community. Nobody really seems to go anywhere. How did he end up a werewolf? Is there another werewolf? What was was Reverend Lowe setting off fireworks in the park at night again and just caught the attention of a werewolf wandering by like Marty? These are all things we would find out in a good movie. But this is a good movie. I don't know about that. Yeah, it is. Uh, Marty tells Jane and Red what happened. Oh, wait, I forgot to mention that uh, the plan to throw Marty in the river's um foiled when uh a farmer on his tractor drives by and somehow marty gets his attention through screams of help which the farmer would never hear over the sound of the uh motor or the engine but marty tells jane and red what happened red admits the story is a lot easier to swallow when the werewolf element's removed um he's already complained to the sheriff red has but it fell on deaf ears since nobody has come forward about receiving threatening letters uh, but then Red notices the dented fender on Marty's bike and asks Jane what color the Reverend's car is. She points out that it's the same color blue uh, left on the silver bullet. Red goes back to Sheriff Holler, who straight up tells him that's the craziest story he's ever heard, but agrees to check out the Reverend. Um, why he does it, why he does it at night, why he does it alone, I have no idea. It just seems it's like convenient. It is convenient. The Reverend isn't answering the doors, so Holler goes around back and checks out the garage. Here he discovers paint from Marty's bike on Lowe's car. Lowe spooks Holler, who immediately draws his gun, but the Reverend transforms and beats Holler to death with the Peacemaker. Um, yeah, here we start seeing a bit of a decline in the special effects. Uh, a decent use of cuts, though, so we don't have to see the transformation take place on screen. So I think that editing... It was a, not only a good choice, but it made it look pretty good. The next day, Red and the siblings are on a park bench. I guess it's the next day. I don't know. I mean, based on this, it could have been seven weeks later. It could have. No, it really could have been because Marty points out that <laughs> Holler told Red he would investigate. And since then, nobody's seen a trace of him. Like, since when? What time is it? Is it noon? Had no one seen him that morning? He Maybe he's sick. But he's saying nobody, which means he's been asking around. Which means it could be a couple of days. It he could went be to the week. reverends in the evening. He could have been sleeping in if it was the next day. Exactly. Time means nothing in this movie. That's my only real complaint. That and that the werewolf looks like a bear. Uh, that's your only complaint. Yeah. Anyway, All right. he gives Red a silver chain and medallion asking him to turn to a silver bullet. Red points out that the moon wasn't full when Holler went to the church. Jane suggests that maybe the full moon is only a part of the made-up stories and might not apply to real life, um, thinking that maybe it can turn into a werewolf any night, but as the moon gets fuller, Marty points out, he gets wolfier. Jane then gives Red her chain and crucifix as well. And now it's just, they're just making up part of the werewolf lore, which is fine. Like I said before, they never really explain 
not do they not really explain no one ever says how the reverend became a werewolf so at least you're saying like none of the rules apply so far maybe this is the case maybe that's the case all right that covers my complaint that's fine marty believes oh i already said this like basically as soon as the moon gets fuller the more of the beast takes over low uh thus on the next full moon the wolf will come for marty it's a jump in logic but okay i mean marty's been doing that the entire movie but he's been right the entire movie well yes as viewers of a werewolf movie we know that Mm -hmm. but even being correct in their universe he has no reason to believe that no all right then Red goes to the gun store and asks the man behind the counter if he'll make a silver bullet, since his nephew is a fan of the Lone Ranger. Uh, the man melts down the silver and does make, indeed, the perfect silver bullet. Um, I do have one problem with this. Okay. And it is probably the tiniest of nitpicks, but it bugged me. Um, yeah, he made a silver bullet. Um, why did he make a silver casing for it? Uh casing doesn't go in the wolf i don't know man yeah it just bugs me my question is when does this movie get good oh it's been great since the beginning okay yeah you just don't know what good is okay yeah uh interesting job uh covering their asses on why this should work though that marty studied every werewolf story he could find and the only similarity within any of them was that it takes silver to kill a werewolf I've read a lot of werewolf stories. That's not the case. So, yes, this movie falls victim to convenience, for convenience sake. Um, But that's fine. It's a Stephen King world. It's a fictitious world. You can't be too nitpicky, I guess. Maybe that's why these people time travel. I don't know. Well, it's the next full moon, and it's Halloween. Coslaws are heading out of town, and Red is left to look after the kids. Red faked winning a romantic weekend for two in New York and gifted it to his sister and Bob to get them out of the house. I thought that was pretty clever. Yep. I also don't know why the kids didn't know it was a full moon. They're both completely caught off guard by it. Like you think werewolves going around killing all of your friends and like fellow townsfolk. You keep an eye on the lunar faces. But we cut to two forty eight AM. All three of them have passed out in the living room while watching TV. And the werewolf approaches from outside. Red wakes up when his lit cigarette burns his hand, and the kids are pissed about the potential of the gun going off, wasting their bullet. Red turns off the TV and tells the two to go to bed, but he agrees to stay up all night and keep watch. Jane so turns. Yeah. Why does the werewolf come that night? Because it's a full moon, and that's when the beast fully takes over, and that's why Marty thinks he's coming on the full moon. The Reverend didn't have the motivation to go after Marty any time before that? Yeah. As a human, he tried to run him off the the bridge, run him off the road. Tried to ram him with the car. He did ram him with the car. I mean, if he could just turn into a werewolf any night. Yeah, but he knows that people know something's going on with him now. Especially after Sheriff Holler shows up. So I think he's just trying to come up i am definitely fabricating my own storyline here but if i were a murderous reverend who is secretly a werewolf and i thought people would start to you know figure out that something's going on i would try and take my time and plan as well as i could the best you know mo what i should be doing what i should be changing 
But if it's true and that as the moon gets fuller, you get wolfier, you kind of lose the ability to control. I don't know why you would wait until 248 or why the wolf would wait until 248 in the morning. But I don't know. I can see it. That's why he would go after him on a full moon because less of the man is in control. You know what? Stop making me explain myself because now I sound like a complete fucking jackass. Okay. Thank you. Jane turns to the window and sees the beast staring at her. She screams and runs to her uncle, but the wolf has disappeared. Red peers out the window and sees nothing. He begins to feel like a horse's ass and takes the bullet out of the revolver's drum. Don't know why, but if there is a werewolf in full beast mode on a full moon, then this beast is smart enough to understand how electricity works because it rips the cables out of the power box, sending the house into darkness. Uh, is, this, and- uh, is this an example of your full beast taking over and your inability to plot? Totally. Because, you know, nothing makes sense at this point. Because somehow pulling out the wires from the power box uh, kills the fire in the fireplace. At least in this scene, because it's back on in the next one. Okay. Wolf bursts through the wall of the house. Windows are right there. I don't know why you go through the wall. Uh, Knocking over Red and sending the bullet flying across the room and into a heating vent in the floor. And this werewolf looks like shit. It's bad. It is the worst werewolf I have ever seen, except for the Twilight movies. Eh. You disagree? The howling was pretty bad. The howling was great. You shut your mouth. Okay, all right. But no, I guess Stephen King insisted on this being the werewolf design. He wanted it to be like covered in uh, black bear fur. He wanted it to look more like a bear. And at that point, I'm like, well, then just make it a werebear. Or just don't make it. No, this movie's great. I'm glad it I'm glad it exists, but I don't like this werewolf suit whatsoever. Okay. It launches Red across the room and into the china cabinet, a stunt that Busey did himself. Uh, Jane tries to grab the gun, but the werewolf grabs her and picks her up by her head. Red comes to the rescue, smashing a piece of wood over its back, but this just angers the beast, who throws Jane to the side. She lands next to Marty, and the two try and get the bullet out of the vent. Red gets sent flying into a mirror, shattering it, Another stunt by Busey, and this one actually cutting him open. Uh, Red stabs the wolf with a fire poker, but gets thrown behind the couch. Uh, Pretty decent fight scene, really. Uh, Marty finally grabs the bullet, loads the gun, and fires, hitting the werewolf in its other eye, which is really insulting. But again, another nitpick. The kickback on a forty-four Magnum would have broken Marty's face. The way he's holding that gun. Uh, The werewolf stumbles backward, hitting the wall and slumping to the ground. It slowly transforms back into human and lurches forward screaming, but slumps back again and it dies. It's a decent jump scare, I thought. Red rushes over to the kids, hugging them. Jane asks her brother if he's all right, and he says, all except for my legs. I don't think I can walk. Which I thought would have gotten a laugh out of you. No. Really? All right. Well, the three of them laugh. Marty and Jane say they love each other. Then we get a freeze frame, and that creepy VO from older Jane comes back. It says that that was something she could never say before, but can say now. And then fade to black and roll credits. But I have to talk about that quote. I mentioned it at the beginning of the episode. I wasn't always able to say that, but I can say it now. I love you too, Marty. Good night. Good night. What the fuck does that mean? It... it- is she telling this story at his funeral? I, that's what I thought. I'm like, is Marty dead? 
Like, what is this? And she says it in such a creepy way. You really didn't like this movie. It wasn't good. Yes, it was. Okay. I mean, I haven't heard you explain any of the good to me yet. You've even gone off on more rants about how it's bad. It's fun. I'm not going to sit here and praise everything about it because we'll be here for another three hours. All right. Care to guess uh, how much money went into this? Based off that sick werewolf costume? This was what, 1986? Five. 1985? Six million. Close. Seven. Ah, I was going to say seven, too. Never second guess your first thought. <laughs> well, I, I think seven makes sense. And I really do believe that a lot of it probably went to um, Busey and Terry O'Quinn and Haim, for sure. Um, uh, you want to guess a gross? <sighs> Always go with your first guess. 13. Oh, 12.4. Damn. It was yeah, close. You're close both times. Yeah. I, I would I would give you both of those. I think you guessed right. You um, know, the funny thing is I thought 13, and then I was like, oh, maybe 14, maybe 17. And you're like, go with your first guess. <laughs> you saved me on that one. That's what I'm here for, buddy. Uh you obviously... to recommend terrible werewolf movies. No such thing. Okay. Um I think you're really gonna disagree with the uh the viewers gave it an IMDb as well as the audience score and the critics from Rotten Tomatoes. Um, what do you think this got on IMDb? Mm. Keep in mind, this is a considered a cult classic now. 6.4. 6.4 out of 10. Really? Yeah. Um, doesn't do as well on Rotten Tomatoes, but do you, uh, care to take a guess what the critics gave it? Okay, um, 51. Ooh, 45. Ah. Still pretty close, pretty close. Uh, audience gave it a higher than that, but... Cult in, classic. I'm yeah. gonna say audience 59. 56. Ah! That's still very close. Good job. Um, I disagree with those. Oh, actually, no. I agree. 6.4 to 10 IMDb. It's not the best werewolf movie ever made, but it's better than a lot. Um, 45 from the critics is just insulting. Generous. No. If it wasn't for The Howling, this would be the worst werewolf movie you've made me watch. The Howling's great. The Howling was terrible. Oh, okay, I'll make you watch The Howling 2 then. How about that? You oh. want to see it? Yeah. <laughs> the Howling 2, your sister is a werewolf. Okay, then maybe this will become the third worst. And I'm going to make sure that that's one that I'm not on. It'll be you and Mark, so I don't have to go through that. That's not going to happen. Um. All right, I'm just looking at uh, I'm Rotten I'm the producer Tomatoes of the now. show. I will make sure that doesn't happen. No, no. What, did you fire Craig? Craig is not the producer. I don't producer even think he Craig. listens anymore. Producer Craig, he actually, he asked for me to do this movie. <laughs> Dad, no way. <laughs> um, this one critic uh, wrote, the spectacle of King churning them out, churning them out, churning them out is unfortunately so much more vivid than anything he writes. Okay. What does there that mean? Go. I don't know. But it's okay. from the Washington Post, a top critic. 
Uh, Matt Brunson from Film Friends, he says, nothing to howl about. Okay. A bad parody of the werewolf films that are set in small town middle America. I didn't know that was a genre of film. Huh. I'm not disagreeing with any of these. So These are all like the negative reviews. Oh, well. What about Robert Martin, who says Silver Bullet is fun rather than terrifying? Yeah, it's not scary. It's a lot of fun. I don't know where the fun is. What's fun? Okay, I, I some some of the people that are are uh, saying good things about this movie, they're not really saying much good. What is this here? There are all sorts of sly satiric touches in the film. Yeah, uh, I that was Roger Ebert. I don't know what to say about that. Where's the fun? It's a lot of fun. Gary Busey's a lot of fun. Gary Busey is a lot of fun. Yeah. This movie In this movie. Not. Yes, it is. You are so negative all the time. All the time. All, all the, the time. time. All the time. Tell me, okay. Tell me three great things about this movie. I'll tell you three bad things about this movie. All right? And think about it. Be honest. Things that you enjoyed. Uh... The first scene with the actor that I liked. No, I'm I. I mean, be serious. No, I really did like that. Um, the first scene with the actor that you liked. <laughs> uh he was the coach in Major League. The drunk okay. who gets yes. decapitated. Yes, okay. I was genuinely happy to see that. James I was Gamble. disappointed when he got killed off because I really do like him. I thought he was even doing a fun job as. The singing drunk. Um, I like that. I will say I loved Gary Busey's delivery in almost everything, mm -hmm. uh, even if none of it made sense or made the movie better. Do you know why I think you like that so much? Uh, I'm not going to guess why. All of his lines were improvised. Yeah, that makes sense. And that's yeah, why they were probably the best script. lines is because they weren't actually scripted as the <laughs> scripted stuff in this was terrible. Yeah, no, they uh, they made him do a, a take with the actual script and then let him just do his own thing a couple for a couple of takes. And more often than not went with his improvisations, which I agree, like, Busey's great. Just let him fly off the handle and use that. So that's two. Okay, what's your third? I honestly don't have any more except for the one that I'm going to use for my favorite scene or moment. And I don't want to say that now. You didn't think Corey Haim was good? He was alright. Jesus, you really did hate this movie. It wasn't good. It, you're right. It is a great movie. Okay. It's a lot of fun. It's one of the better Stephen King movies for sure. Um, I, I said I'll say three things I, I absolutely dislike about this. Uh, first of all, the werewolf costume. Fucking, if you're going to make a werewolf movie, make the werewolf look amazing. Like, I don't know why nobody just, like, chloroformed Stephen King and, like, now that he's out, let's put some money and actual thought into what this thing's going to look like on screen. Um, the timeline. They have, they have continuity editors on all films. If that newspaper was a mistake, fire that continuity error uh, editor because it's there's it causes so many problems with the narrative of the film and the one thing i hate the most of this movie is that goddamn voiceover it just it it's so jarring when it comes into play and it does not help the movie whatsoever and on to awards 
Oh, boy. <laughs> so you start us off with worst performance. Um, we're, we're lifting rules on screen time and whatnot, right? Correct. Okay. I feel bad then because I don't have the person's name right now. I originally wrote uh, Robin Groves as Nan Kozla, but I'm definitely going to have to pick uh, whoever played uh, Stella Randolph. I don't have it in front of me, man. I only have mine written down. So Okay, I feel bad. I but yeah, like that crying scene with the uh, soon-to-be ex-boyfriend, I thought she did a great job. But that line delivery in front of the mirror in her room right before she's ripped apart by the werewolf was some of the worst line delivery I've ever heard in my life. Yeah, it's bad. Yeah. You? Well, clearly I didn't have her because I would have had that written down if that was the case, wouldn't I? Well, I didn't ask if it was the same. I just asked what yours was. Well, earlier in the movie, you said you'd be surprised if I didn't pick that. Okay, you remembered that, eh? Wow, that was yeah. a fleeting moment for me. Ah, I had James A. Bafico as Milt Strumfuller. Uh, His yes. drunken, stumbling, Milt. acting, and yelling at the wrestling screen was unbearable. Balance the budget. He <laughs> sucked. He made that me made so angry. That made my parts hurt. <laughs> <laughs> That's uh, bad. Is is so bad. Like uh, I got, I got the character right. Like he, that came through in his acting, but he just went so far into it. Yep. Yeah. That's yeah. That's a good call. Uh, honestly, it was that it was that line that really got me. Most of the stuff that he was chat chanting was stupid, but when he was like, "Oh, that made my parts hurt," I was like, "No, you're done." Award. You just made the list. Yeah. <laughs> yeah for sure yeah that's get some, uh, get very rock good pick. salt in your ass even uh even kent broadhurst as herb kincaid i thought was pretty rough as uh brady's father there was oh yeah he was a definitely award nominee oh yeah um what about best though i i think there's you could argue four people for best here and I'm not uh, going to go me, through them. Obviously, just picked one. But what about you? For me, it was no question. Gary Busey as Uncle Red. Mm -hmm. He was the most enjoyable character. Uh, every time he was on screen, I wanted to hear what he had to say. Uh, he just came off as a lovable, fun uncle. I don't know. Maybe part of me liked the fact that he was one of the only adults that actually believed in the kids. but And was hesitant to do so, but finally... Gave just in. He really loved them. Yeah, this comes from his heart, like mm -hmm. you said. Yep. Uh, I, 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 of course, also went with Gary Busey. I mean, Haim was great, but so was Everett McGill. Uh, Megan Follows had some really strong points, as did Terry O'Quinn. But if you're looking at the best, in my opinion, yeah, Gary Busey, no, no doubt about it. Uh, he's just so lovable. He made me laugh every time on screen. Just that, even that one. That one word of hey when he's checking on the barbecue had <laughs> no, me like laughing. The awkward way he waves when he says yeah. it too. Like, shoots his hand up like a kid <laughs> in school asking to go to the washroom. Yeah. It's good. He was great. Uh, I honestly, I think I would have preferred it if this movie was told from his perspective. You know, like his struggle with his own like personal demons. But he still has his love for his uh, his niece and nephew. And he's trying to be the good uncle. But his... His uh, nephew has this crazy claim that there's a werewolf around and just him not believing in his family until 
out of nowhere, oh my god, there is actually a werewolf. I think that would have been a better movie. But Stephen or if King he was the werewolf when he was drunk, and he was just getting people that were hurting his kids, like when Brady made the Jane cry. Revenge wolf. Yeah, looking okay. out for his niece and nephew. He doesn't remember it though because he's always drunk when he's a werewolf. <laughs> There's something about Stephen King, man. He writes from a kid's perspective way too frequently, considering he doesn't really know how to write from a kid's perspective outside of like the body, which they turned into stand by me. Fairly certain you discover that immediately when he makes a essentially writes it as if you think that Jane is it Jane Jane. Yeah, that Jane is going to be the main character. Mm -hmm. Like this is not a good sign for where the writing is going. No. But and yeah, it's not even um, done in a way where it's like, oh, it's a delightful swerve. Like, it just is inconsistent. Yeah, it's just jarring. Yep. Um, what did you have line. for favorite or most memorable line? Um, it has nothing to do with the plot of the movie. It's okay. just how much fun some characters have interacting with each other. And it's Deputy Pete and Sheriff Holler in the office. Uh, I have when the same the thing written down. You do where I don't have Holler like yelling into the phone or anything. It's after he slams the phone down. I have it Dep written down from the last two lines. Yeah. I just have Deputy Pete saying, maybe that wasn't such a good idea telling that Smokey Bear from the detective division to fuck off, Joe. And Sheriff Holler just says, well, I waited until he hung up. Yep. That's exactly what I have written down. And then after that, I have in caps. <clears throat> yes, Terry O'Quinn, you fucking legend. Yeah, I mean, he delivers it fantastically. Yeah, he does everything in this movie well. I wish he was in it more. Well, I mean, I don't have anything to add here because that was my line as well. <laughs> okay, but you know, <laughs> what about a memorable scene then? Uh, so this, for me, was very easy as well. It is the scene where Marty at night goes to apologize to Jane and gives her the money for the pantyhose. Um, this... <clears throat> this might have been the best acted scene in the movie for me. Um, I really felt a connection between them. I felt remorse on Marty's part. Uh, I just thought it was a really, really well done scene that didn't fit in this movie. Because it was good. <laughs> it, 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 I would say it's great. Uh, it's also my most You know what? Scene. I will too. It was great. That scene was great. Yeah. I mean, it is the most human of the entire film, like Marty obviously being, you know, saddened, uh, embarrassed, hurt that he hurt Jane's feelings so much. Um, tries to like, he doesn't try and wake her up. He just tries to sneak in and leave money on her, but her nightstand. Uh, she's awake asking why he tells her why she gives him back the extra money saying he left too much and she can buy it for less. And you get that back and forth. Like, it was an honest moment where these two actually felt like siblings. And it felt like there was legit heart and emotion in it. Like, yeah, best, I'd say best and most memorable scene. So, uh, I guess really. Oh, so you're, you're agreeing then? You're not just expanding on mine. You're also saying that's yours? I'm agreeing with you. That is mine yet as well. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Well, sometimes uh, you just elaborate on mine and then go to yours. So okay. Sure. Yeah, no, that's, I, I agree with you. It's also my most memorable scene. All right. Um, so uh, what are your final thoughts on this movie there, Ben? I love this movie. Um, I embrace its faults. 
and I love its strengths. Um, but I love the 80s, man. I love the 80s. I love werewolves. I love Gary Busey. I love Corey Haim. Um, and of course, Terry O'Quinn. But I don't know if it's more nostalgia for me that's hanging on to this because I found it after I had read the book that I love so much. Uh, and I think that's maybe why you and I disagree about so much of this is because, yeah, nostalgia for me. But I also love bad movies. And sometimes bad movies don't mean the movie itself is bad. There's just certain elements that don't really work as well for some people as they do for others. Like if you look through a book called the bad movie Bible, there's a lot of great movies in there. It's just people don't, I don't know. People just shit on them for the wrong reasons. Uh, would I recommend this movie though? Of course I would. It's great. I love this movie. <laughs> uh, I have so much fun talking about its flaws, but like, there are a lot worse out there for sure. Uh, it's fun. It's cheesy. It's campy. It's Gary Busey rocking out hard. Like it's yeah, I I really enjoy it. I would recommend it. I admit that most people probably won't like it, but should at least give it a shot. And now let's hear your scathing review. Uh, so I don't recommend this movie, um, <laughs> especially as a werewolf movie. It is very slow. Um, not a lot happens in it. Even if you're a horror fan, it's a low body count, very minimal action scenes. The special effects are terrible. Yeah, the yeah, plot yeah. has terrible consistency. Um, really, the only people that I could sh say should watch this are big Gary Busey fans who want to see some fun stuff with him. Otherwise... I was pretty bored and just waiting for the clock to run out on this one. I don't think you have ever had such a wrong opinion on any movie we've ever covered. I don't know. I'm sure there's probably some. Actually, yeah, you're right. There probably are. I guess if you're a fan of The Howling, then you'll probably like hey. this one. Because at least this one's better than that. The Howling is a great movie. It is a classic werewolf film. Yeah, classic doesn't mean good, Ben. Yes. <laughs> yes, it does. No. No, it doesn't. No, you know what? Okay. It's not like saying something's <laughs> old. Saying something old is good. Man, it's old. You're right. That's great. Fucking classic. This movie is great. I don't know why you're laughing. Oh, uh, I'm good, man. I'm enjoying myself. Yeah, I can fucking tell. You just like pissing me off, don't you? I mean, this might be the most enjoyable thing that survived, that revolved around this week of this movie. Oh, my God. This is great. It's a good movie. <laughs> you have to stop being such a dick, man. I, I, it's not my fault I didn't like a movie, man. It's, sure not like it I'm, it's not like I'm disliking the movie just to stick it to you. I just genuinely didn't think, like the movie. I think you are. This has too many <laughs> elements of, of a movie that you should like. What? What does it have? It's got fucking Busey. It's got Haim. It's got O'Quinn. It's got werewolves. It is not slow, sir. I have seen plenty of movies with actors that I enjoy that are bad movies. Just saying it has Busey and Terry O'Quinn doesn't make me like it automatically. These aren't bad actors. Are you saying they're bad actors? No, I'm saying you said that's reasons that I should like it. I agree. I should like a movie with them in it, but that doesn't mean I'm automatically going to like the movie just because they're in it. Yeah, I know. 
but this movie has more str- more strengths than weaknesses. Like, uh, I'm pretty sure uh, anybody who listens back to this episode won't even hear that in your words. Hey, I was bringing that up to get a rise out of you. Okay, man. I mean, you listen back to the episode and see how positive you are throughout the entire movie. I know how positive I am about it. Not very. All right. Well, I'm just going to punish you with the next movie then. That's not very nice. Mm-hmm. Don't worry. By by you not liking wicked films, you'll probably love a terrible one. How about that? Yeah, I'm sure that's the case. Yeah. Before you, you let us know what that is, just a quick reminder to everybody that you can hit us up on social media. We are on Twitter at BS Bargain Bin. We are on Facebook.com slash BS Bargain Bin. You can shoot us an email, although nobody does, so why even bother mentioning that? Um, Yeah, well, you know what? Whatever. Huh? Positive. Sure, sure. Yeah, positive feedback. Um, What? No. Ben, what Mm -hmm. is it that we're going to be watching together next week? Shit, I forgot about that. Oh, God. Uh, This is going to bite me. Um, well, next week we're going to be talking and watching 1985's Once Bitten. Mark Kendall's a regular guy. Get me out of here! With normal problems. I want to, but I want it to be special. But Mark's just discovered... Hello, tall, dark, and handsome. (laughs) ...that his one-night stand... I haven't had anything this pure since the Vienna Boys Choir hit town. ...has been around for centuries. I'm 390 years old. 400 if you're a day. Mark Kendall is necking... Finally happened. ...with a vampire. Did I enjoy it? (laughs) Now, he's losing his girl. Bit my lip. His customers... Get out of here! His image... Look, I'm not there! And his mind. Oh, wow, I love your outfits. I'm not wearing a costume. Mark's got to choose. It's like you're not the Mark I thought I knew. You look like Jerry Lewis. Between his first love. I'm the owner of the pants you've been trying to get into for the last four years. And his last date. How would you like to spend eternity with me? I can't. I gotta go to college. Before his future goes up in smoke. How'd you like your crotch set on fire? Ooh. Rough trade. Nothing is sacred <gasps> in a tasty comedy. Can I have one of those uncooked ones? You can sink your teeth into. How was it? Delicious. Once bitten. Once bitten. I don't want to be a vampire. I'm the day person. You <laughs> Nice, Jim Carrey. Until oh, next I- week, have a good one, guys. I knew he was going to like it. Why did I pick it? All the best, guys.